We're going to turn in our Bibles now to Psalm 23. Psalm 23, and I'm going to ask John to uh, please come forward and read this passage for us. Thank you. Let's hear God's word. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Please turn now in your Bibles again to Revelation. Revelation, we are reading from chapter 7, and verse, from verses 9 to 17. Revelation chapter 7, and verses 9 to 17. And I'll ask Robert to please come forward and read this passage to us. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing round the throne, and round the elders, and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing, and glory, and wisdom, and thanksgiving, and honour, and power, and might, be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Amen. If you would 
Please turn with me back in back to uh, Psalm 23, the psalm which we read together earlier on. This will be uh, the psalm, the passage of scripture that we are considering this morning from the word of God. The title that I have given to this sermon this morning is The Shepherd of the Victorious Lamb. The Shepherd of the Victorious Lamb. If I were to ask you uh, what is one of the most well-known passages of Scripture, I'm sure that many of you would say Psalm 23. This psalm has been recited at, uh, by political leaders at times of great national and international crisis. It has been sung at weddings and at funerals countless times. And for the church, it is one of those passages from which believers draw so much encouragement in times of great difficulty. And very often, we think of this psalm as descriptive of our personal relationship with God. We view ourselves as the sheep in this psalm. We view ourselves as those whose shepherd is the Lord, and rightly so. If we are believers, then certainly, without a shadow of a doubt, the Lord is our shepherd. But we should maybe stop and ask ourselves the question, who, is, who exactly is the sheep in this psalm? Who is the one who is saying, the Lord is my shepherd? Well, we're told in the title of the psalm, this is a psalm of David. This is a psalm of the Lord's anointed. This is a psalm of the Lord's Messiah, if you like. The words that we have in this psalm, they're not simply the words of any and every believer. These are the words of the Messiah. And so they can only be sung by the rank-and-file believer in union with that Messiah. And ultimately, these words are the words of Jesus Christ. These are the words of the Messiah. That Messiah of whom all the other anointed ones in Scripture are merely types. We who genuinely sing this psalm after Jesus Christ, we sing it only in him and because of him. Let me put this a different way. If Jesus had not sung these words in the truest sense in which they were ever sung, then we could never own these words as our own. The Lord is our shepherd. Only because he was first of all the shepherd of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. And now naturally the question will come up. Isn't Jesus the good shepherd, the one who lays down his life for the sheep? Well, he is. And this is a truth which we revel in. This is a truth which we cling to for our eternal salvation. He is the good shepherd. But as we, as we have just read in Revelation 7, he is both... The Lamb and the Shepherd. Just as David was. The one who said the Lord was his shepherd. He was himself the shepherd of Israel. Jesus Christ could never have been the conquering shepherd. If he, hadn't, if he had not first of all been the Lamb of God. 
Now, we can ask the question, what is the background, the context to this psalm? Well, we're not told directly, but some commentators would argue that this psalm, Psalm 23, was penned by David during the rebellion of his son Absalom. I'm inclined to agree with that assessment. Psalm 23 paints a picture of David in exile, away from the house of God, away from Mount Zion. But as we will see in the final verse of the psalm, those words where, where, where the psalmist says, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever, those words bear the meaning of returning to dwell in the Lord's house. The psalm, this entire psalm, speaks of David's exile from the house of God and his return to the house of God. And the events that surround the rebellion of Absalom seem to fit the implied context of this psalm the best. But whatever the context of this psalm is, this psalm undoubtedly portrays a time of severe calamity for David. A time of severe testing. It's a time of severe trial. But in the face of the unfolding disaster, in the face of the almost incomprehensible nature of the events that are transpiring, David expressed his steadfast confidence, his faith in the purpose and the presence of God in the midst of his exile. And he, is a, he, he expresses his confidence that God will not only preserve him, but God will return him to Jerusalem, to the very sanctuary of the Lord, to the abode of the king. If that's the context of the psalm for David, how much more could Jesus Christ sing these words in his estate of humiliation? In Jesus' life, everything pointed to failure. Everything, everything pointed to him being rejected by God. And ultimately, in his death, by crucifixion on a Roman cross, that seemed to dash all hope that here was the one who was to deliver Israel. But in the words of Psalm 23, as sung by Jesus Christ, we see the confidence of the great psalm singer, Jesus Christ himself, his great confidence in the shepherding of his father. In the face of all the seeming defeat, the defeat of death itself, yet Jesus' shepherd would bring him to the victory of the Lamb through this death. Most of the actions in this psalm, they're done by God. But four times the psalmist uses the word I. In verse 1, I shall not want. In ver two, we have two of them in verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And then in verse 6, I will dwell in the house of the Lord. But whenever the psalmist says I, it is always as a response to what God does. But all that God does for the psalmist is summed up in what he is in relation to the psalmist. God does.
does because God is and God is the psalmist's shepherd. In a nutshell then, this psalm displays to us the Messiah. And it displays to us that the Messiah is confident in the Lord's purpose, in the Lord's presence and in the Lord's preservation. Because the Lord is his shepherd. And therefore, he shall not want, he shall not fear, and he will return to dwell in God's house. So first of all, we see this psalm in three parts. And the first part I want us to concentrate on is verses 1 to 3, where the psalmist says, I shall not want the Messiah's confidence in the Lord's purpose. The Messiah's confidence in the Lord's purpose. I wonder have any of you seen artists' impressions of the, the scene that is, just, that is portrayed for us in these first three verses of Psalm 23. When an artist gives us his impression, his or her impression of what they see here, we're often shown picturesque landscapes of verdant green pastures with a possibly a babbling brook trickling fresh, crisp, clean water with a shepherd and a flock of sheep tracking quietly along. And in this scene that would be portrayed by an artist, there is plenty and there is safety in this landscape. That's, that's a nice picture. But I don't think that's what we have in Psalm 23. What we are meant to see in Psalm 23 in the first, step, few, first three verses is a bleak and barren landscape, a wilderness. In this landscape, there is no rich pasture as far as the eye can see. Water is nowhere in sight. The psalmist portrays himself as one who is passing through dangerous and barren territory. This is a place where he could very well be consumed through lack of provision. For the psalmist, there is one thing and only one thing that gives him hope and confidence of making it through this landscape alive. It is the fact that the Lord is his shepherd. The truth of the matter is that without this shepherd, he would, have, he would be consumed through want. As one commentator puts it, my security lies not in my environment, but in my shepherd. This is a wilderness wasteland. And yet despite that fact, since the Lord is his shepherd, David will not want. Through the direct provision of the shepherd, the psalmist will have food. He will have green pastures, enough to fill his belly and give him contented sleep he will have access to water waters of resting as the hebrew puts it but notice that the picture of grass and the picture of water it's not so much to do with the provision of food it's more to do with the provision of rest even in bleak and barren territory the psalmist is made to lie down and sleep and rest the idea is one of unanxious confidence in the Lord, in the shepherd's purpose. The shepherd 
has good reason to bring his sheep into this place, into this wilderness. The sheep rests content in that knowledge. And we see this further in in verse 3. David's soul is in need of refreshment. The Lord provides this refreshment, this restoration. I believe that we should see this refreshing of the soul of the psalmist as being summed up in his being led in the paths of righteousness. And we saw this in Psalm 119 in the part 4 that we sang together. There the psalmist was lamenting that his soul was clinging to the dust, melting away for sorrow. What is the remedy which he longed for, which he sought for? It was the reviving and the life and the strength that came from the word of God. The psalmist there and here longs to be led in the straight, in the well-marked paths of righteousness. For David, to live according to God's revealed will is so refreshing. In these dire straits in which he finds himself, he's been dragged in so many directions according to the whim and the will of men. There were so many differing voices who were competing and jostling for a hearing in order to influence him in what he should do in the midst of this exile in which he found himself. And doubtless these things were wearying to his soul. What should he do? But he is restored. He is refreshed and revived by God's revealed will. And in living in the hope of that word. How does David know that God's word And the right paths that it shows to him. How does he know that they are trustworthy? It is because his shepherd leads him in the paths of righteousness for his own name's sake. The Lord's name. The Lord's reputation is on the line. If he leads his anointed one in a wrong path, then what kind of a shepherd is he? But no, he leads his sheep his anointed one, in the paths of righteousness so that the greatest good imaginable will come from it. The name of the covenant God of Israel will be magnified. But in all of these trials, in all of these calamities which faced David, he could very easily have been tempted to question God. He could could quite easily have said to God, have you brought me out into this wilderness to slay me? Do you mean to destroy me? But no, the, the, the psalmist displays true and steadfast faith in his shepherd. The Lord is his shepherd. Therefore he will not lack, though everything points to the complete opposite. The Lord is giving rest and quietness to him. In the midst of chaos and turmoil. If David trusted God's plan and purpose when all seemed lost. Then Christ trusted all the more. If David was confident in his shepherd. Then Christ was all the more confident. Christ 
as he walked on this earth, he displayed utter dependence and confidence in God, his shepherd. Think of Christ's life. Christ condescended not simply to become a man, utterly marvellous as that in itself is, but he condescended to a humiliation consisting of what our larger catechism refers to as circumstances of more than ordinary abasement. And yet in all of that he relied completely and utterly on his father. Do you ever think that Christ spoke from personal experience when he commands his followers, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. The Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. Even though the birds flew to their nests and the foxes crawled into their holes, the Son of Man had nothing. And yet he rested in his shepherd's purpose. The Lord Jesus experienced refreshment in his own soul when Satan came to tempt him in the wilderness. He was famished with hunger after spending 40 days and nights in prayer and fellowship with his father. He ate no bread during that time, yet he dined sumptuously on the word of God. It had been his food and drink during those 40 days. And as Satan came to him to tempt him, it was, on that, it was on the sustenance of that food from the word from which Christ drew. The word of God, the word of his father, laid out for him his task in the word Christ saw his messianic duty, his duty as the Christ. He did not have to forge a pathway for himself. The word showed him the paths of righteousness and said, walk in it. It was always the word of his father which refreshed and restored the soul of Jesus Christ. In those days and weeks leading up to the cross. There's a wonderful little phrase in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 13, where the writer attributes the following words as coming from the lips of Jesus Christ. I will put my trust in him. The Savior said, I will put my trust in God. Well, what is the point of the writer to the Hebrews? What is he saying? He is saying that God the Son became a man. But the man that he became was a man of faith. A man whose entire confidence was in his heavenly father. Jesus did not come on the scene, on this scene, as a man who was self-sufficient. He came as a man totally and utterly dependent on God. Why was it important that our saviour be a man of faith? Why, why was it important that our Saviour be a man who was fully reliant on God? Well, a faithless Saviour would have given up at the first hurdle. A faithless Saviour would have abandoned his work at the first opportunity. <clears throat> a faithless Saviour would have made stones into bread. A faithless Saviour would have tested God by throwing himself off the temple. 
faithless saviour would have bowed the knee to Satan and worshipped him in exchange for all the kingdoms of the earth. A faithless saviour would have feared that God would not be true to his promise. In the final analysis, a faithless saviour would have been a powerless saviour. Jesus submitted to his Father's will in all things with the absolute confidence that God's purpose, his plans and promise would be accomplished. And it was this utter trust and faith which made the Father well pleased with the Son. Not only do we see the Messiah's confidence in the Lord's purpose, but secondly, he says, I shall not fear. So we see the Messiah's confidence in the Lord's presence in verses 4 and 5. Those words that we have translated as the valley of the shadow of death. We can sometimes get the idea that this is some uh, valley in the midst of two gently sloping mountains. But that's not the idea that we are to have. This is a deep, rocky ravine, a jagged canyon from which there is no escape. It is a place of mortal danger, a place of death, a place where the enemy lurks. And now the psalmist David finds himself hemmed into a place where he knows so many others have perished. This is the canyon of the death shadow. This is a terrifying place to be. And yet the psalmist is unafraid. He is aware of the danger, but he does not fear. Why not? He says, for you are with me. Up until this point, he has been talking about the Lord. And from this point, for the next two verses, he's speaking to the Lord. He says, you are with me. The presence of the shepherd is what drives away all fear from the psalmist. There are 55 words in Psalm 23 in the Hebrew, in the original. And this phrase that we have translated, for you are with me, is the central phrase. This is the climax of the psalm. David is confident of the Lord's presence Again, his circumstances would seem to indicate his immediate and imminent demise, this time at the hand of his enemy. But the psalmist's confidence is not in what is seen, but what is unseen. Yes, this ravine, this canyon would be his grave, except for this one fact, the Lord is with him. I wonder... Did David imagine some pushback as he spoke of the Lord being his shepherd? You could just imagine someone overhearing him saying, the Lord is my shepherd. And that person saying, hold on a minute. The Lord is your shepherd? With all due respect, your majesty, how can a dethroned king speak like this? Has not your God deserted you? How can you imagine God is your shepherd when you are in this exile? Has he not evidently rejected you? Oh yes, this valley, this ravine of death's shadow is real. 
And David knows it. But in confidence he asserts, you, Lord, are with me. And what will God's presence be like in this death canyon? He will comfort David through his protection and guidance with his rod and staff. He will lay a table for his anointed. A table which his enemies will watch him dining from. David will be anointed with oil upon his head. Not this time the oil of coronation, but the anointing of honour. And his cup will be filled to overflowing. What is this language indicating? This is a victory banquet. The Lord's enemies, the anointed one's enemies, even though their victory seems guaranteed, they have trapped the psalmist into the death canyon. But the Lord will, un- will deliver his anointed by presencing himself with him. But you notice that the Lord has brought his sheep into this canyon. He has brought his sheep into this ravine of the death shadow. David is not here by mistake. The right paths of the Lord have brought him to this point. The lamb must come here to face death so that the valley of death itself can be turned into the valley of victory. But the striking thing is that the, that the, the psalmist was confident of victory. Because the Lord, his shepherd, was with him. The Lord did not reject his shepherd. Even though he brought him into the valley of the shadow of death. The Lord would, would turn this apparent defeat into victory. And so it was with David's greater son. The path that the Lord had marked out for Jesus Christ was one of confrontation with death. This was the very purpose of his life. But he did not travel this path alone. Jesus said with confidence, He that sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. Jesus had his Father with him. And so he was guaranteed the victory banquet. He would be exalted. But in the case of Christ, before the the banquet of victory could be an exaltation, it must first of all be a humiliation. Christ must first eat the bread of sorrows. My meat is to do the will of him who sent me. What was that will? To sanctify those given to him by the Father through the humiliating, once for all offering up of his own body on the cross. He must first eat the bread of sorrows. He must first be anointed with oil, the oil of burial. You remember that story of the woman who anointed Jesus' head with oil? Christ knew that she was God's instrument. To prepare his body for burial. Christ knew what was ahead of him. He knew that the humiliation of remaining three days in the grave awaited him. But he first must be anointed with the oil of burial.
he must first drink the cup of the wrath of God. As he approached the climax of his mediatorial work on behalf of his people, he saw that cup before him, the cup of the wrath of God. That cup was lipping full. Christ was spared nothing when he came to redeem his people. God did not dilute the contents of that cup. Christ drank that cup to its bitterest dregs. That cup, to drink from it, was the very epitome of shame and disgrace. There's an interesting phrase in Habakkuk 2, verse 16. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. This cup was the humiliation of becoming sin for his people, taking their place before God the judge, bearing their sin and becoming a curse for them. Christ must first drink the cup of the wrath of God. But Jesus faced all of this with the confidence that God was with him. What then should we make of those words which we have at the beginning of Psalm 22? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Did the Father reject Christ? Did God remove his presence from the Son and leave him to face death alone? Well, here we must tread carefully. We come into hallowed territory when we consider these words. We, we cannot drive a wedge between the persons of the Trinity. The Son was not divided from the Father and the Spirit. Nor can we drive a wedge between the two natures of Christ. The divinity of Christ was not separated from his humanity. We must tenaciously hold on to two undeniable facts. Jesus was really forsaken by God as he became sin for us on the cross. But at the same time, he prayed to the God who was there. He cried to his ever-present God who had forsaken him. Our minds cannot take in and hold together and combine these two facts. But this is what scripture teaches us. God abandoned the lamb. But he did not reject him. At the very moment that Christ bore the wrath of his father against sin. God delighted in him. <coughs> Isaiah chapter 50 verses 6 to 7 have these words. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me. Jesus Christ had razor focused confidence that the Lord would give him victory over death through his presence with him. 
And so for this reason, he did not fear. The psalmist did not want. The psalmist did not fear. Thirdly and finally, in verse 6, I shall return to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The Messiah's confidence in the Lord's preservation. The word that we have translated dwell in this context bears more the sense of returning to dwell. The psalmist David has the confidence that the Lord will preserve him in his exile and will bring him back to sit on the Lord's throne in Jerusalem once again as the victorious king. Now this preservation is portrayed for us in a very remarkable figure of speech. David says that goodness and mercy alone will pursue him. We usually use that word surely, surely goodness and mercy. But that word can also be translated as only. And then the word follow, it's another striking word in this context. It means pursue. What David is saying then is that only goodness and mercy will be his pursuers. And when we consider what is happening in the context, then this is utterly amazing. David is being pursued by Absalom. They're hounding him to take him out. The assassins are closing in on David moment by moment. And yet David confidently maintains that only, only goodness and mercy are are his pursuers. What is he saying? He is saying that God's goodness and mercy will overtake any enemy that seeks his life. And God's goodness and mercy will hedge him about to preserve him. Those words, goodness and mercy, are also very significant. The word goodness. In Exodus 33, when Moses asked asked God to show him his glory, God replied that he would make all his goodness pass before Moses. God's goodness is synonymous with his glory. And then there's the word mercy. Our lecturers and professors at the college would tell us not to use Hebrew words in preaching. But can I please have one word? It's this word that's translated mercy. It's the word hesed. The Hebrew word hesed. It's such a beautiful word. It defies translation into English by any one single word. It is so rich. It can be translated as covenant faithfulness. Steadfast love, loving kindness, mercy. And when the Lord made his glory, his goodness pass before Moses, he declared that he is a God abundant in hesed, abundant in covenant faithfulness, abundant in mercy. This is the defining characteristic of our covenant Lord. So then what does it mean that God's goodness and mercy will pursue the psalmist all the days of his life? It is nothing short of God himself, the God of glory and covenant faithfulness, pursuing, following hard after his sheep, 
preserving him and bringing him right into his courts to dwell with him forever. What did it mean for Jesus Christ to be pursued by God's glory and covenant faithfulness? It meant resurrection and ascension to the Father's right hand in power. Paul gives us two phrases in the New Testament. He said in Romans 6 verse 4, Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father. By the glory of the Father, Christ was raised up. And then in Acts 13 and verse 34, he tells the congregation in the synagogue in in Antioch, he says, as for the fact that God raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken in this way. And then Paul quotes from Isaiah. And he says, I will give you the holy and sure blessings, or hesed, of David. The exaltation of Jesus Christ to resurrection And to reign at the Father's right hand are the direct result of his being pursued by God's goodness and God's mercy. By God's glory and covenant faithfulness. It it was Christ's confidence in this promised glory and covenant faithfulness of God that drove him on as he laid down his life as the Lamb of God. He knew he would be preserved And so he was confident that he would dwell, that he would return to dwell in the Lord's house forever. So then, we have seen in this psalm the confidence that our great king had in God, his shepherd. Was this confidence honoured? It most certainly was. God shepherded his lamb, Jesus Christ, throughout his life, in his death and burial, right through his whole humiliation. Revelation 7 tells us about that lamb now, glorified and exalted. Verse 17 of that passage that we read together. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to the springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This lamb. This one who was shepherded. He is now the shepherd. And what he could say of the Lord as his shepherd. We say of him. As he had confidence in the purpose. In the presence and in the preservation of God. So can we. As the lamb followed the shepherd in Psalm 23, so we, with the same confidence, we can follow the lamb wherever he goes. The lamb has been through the wilderness. The lamb has been through the canyon of the death shadow. And by the glory and covenant faithfulness of God, he has gone to the house of his father. And what does he say to us, brothers and sisters? He says, where I am, you will be also. As this psalm of David was sung in those days, 
after the rebellion of Absalom was quashed, the people would have thought the Lord didn't reject his, his anointed king. The Lord has indeed set his king on his holy hill of Zion. We can have confidence in David as our shepherd because the Lord has honoured him. As we now sing Psalm 23 together, we look to the Lamb whom the, whom the Lord has crowned. The Lamb trusted in God without reserve and therefore the Lord has made him to be both Lord and Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep. Dear flock of God, rest contented in your shepherd's purpose. Even though it appears that all is turning against you. Even though it appears that you could be consumed through want and through lack. Yet because of his purpose, you will never lack. Be confident in your Lord's presence. Even as you make your way through the canyon of the death shadow. With him at your side, you have no reason to fear. Yes, death is real. But he has already defeated it. He has already defeated our great and final enemy. Do you realise that the very same glory and the very same covenant faithfulness, the very same goodness and mercy, which raised again from the dead... The lamb who was slain. That great shepherd of the sheep. That very same glory and covenant faithfulness. Will one day take each and every one of God's children to be with him. This lamb is the shepherd in whom you can trust. He is worthy of your confidence. Because he is the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. Amen. Our great Heavenly Father, we rejoice that we have such a shepherd as Jesus Christ, who was the faithful Lamb, the one who rested and was confident in you. We rejoice that he is the one who has died for us, and he is the one who has been raised again, and he leads us wherever he goes. We pray that you would be with us now, as we part, may we remember the rest of this Sabbath day to keep it holy, to worship and to praise you. We pray that you would bring this congregation back again this evening to worship you in the close of your day. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.